Good morning. Uh, my name is Pastor John, associate pastor here at East Shore. I'm so glad that you've joined us for worship this morning. In the past few weeks, we've been talking through a series of just some burning questions that have been going through my mind, and maybe they've been going through yours, maybe they haven't, but they're questions that God's Word does speak to, and so they're ones that I feel we should look at to see what God has to say about these issues we may be feeling at this time in our lives and in our world. And I'm sure you've noticed, whether you're in the news or on social media or perhaps even talking to your family, it's a very angry, divisive time in the world. Sometimes it maybe even happens in a church. We have anger, we have disagreements, we have arguments. We may say something like this, did you hear what that person did? I can't believe they did that. Do you know what I saw on Facebook the other day? This person said this, I can't believe that they did that. And this type of anger, division, this outrage that comes when we hear these things, it's having an effect across culture. I was reminded of a statistic I read a couple years ago. Did you know that in the 1950s, 72% of parents said that it didn't matter if their children married someone who was a Republican or a Democrat? 72% of parents said it didn't matter who they married. In 2016, that number had dropped to 45%, and if they took it again today, I would honestly expect it to be lower than that. Thanks to the internet, we now know everything that's going on in the world at every time. You can't hide anything. And if you live in a world where you can hear everything, you can know about whatever's happening across the country or across the world, you will have more opportunities to get upset about something. Now, there's a lot of positive to that type of knowledge. We're more connected. We have awareness of what's going on in the world. But on the other hand, we do get upset because the truth is the world is full of a whole bunch of different people. And you will hear things, see things that you disagree with personally. And maybe as a person of faith that you disagree as a Christian. I disagree with what that person, what that group is doing. And so the question is, now what? What should we do when we hear about something that we disagree with? Well, there's a couple of options we could take when we hear this. One option would be to just ignore it. Well, I'm just going to ignore that disagreement. It doesn't really matter. And that can work for some things, but there are some issues that do matter. And when it does matter, what do we do then? Well, a second option may be, I hear something I disagree with. I can't believe somebody said or did that. So I just divide. I I separate myself. I have nothing to do with any person that I disagree with about anything. Of course, the problem with that is if you start down that road, you'll be dividing and dividing and dividing again for the rest of your life because you'll never find someone you 100% agree with all the time. In fact, you probably don't agree with yourself 100% all the time. This may come as a shock to those of you who are long-term members here and have listened to me preach sermons, but I don't agree with Charles Spurgeon 100% of the time. I know, I know, I know, shocking. I know I like to quote him. But the truth is we never agree with someone 100%. So a third option a lot of people do is they they join a group, a team, a, a tribe that shares a common belief about something, and then they try to destroy their opponents, get rid of them, silence their arguments. I hope we would all agree that, you know, killing people we disagree with is not a good idea, but we often do the same thing with some of our words. The kind of thing I'm talking about is some circles it's called outrage culture or cancel culture. It's the idea that if somebody says something that you and your group disagrees with, well, then that person needs to be silenced. You shouldn't listen to anything they say. They don't have the right to speak anymore. They don't matter whether their offense was big or small. They've been canceled. We ignore them. 
there was a TV show I used to watch that uh, had an episode that kind of talked about this, and it was a couple years ago. So it was a show called The Orville, and there was an episode called Majority Rule. And this show was kind of like a Star Trek kind of thing. They traveled to different planets, and on one planet they were on, everybody had to wear a little badge like this. And if you did something people liked, well, they'd give you an upvote on your little badge. And if you did something people didn't like, they'd give you a downvote on your little badge. And that was the way this planet's whole system operated. And so if you got too many downvotes, well, then you'd be arrested. And then if you got too many more, they would do a lobotomy. They'd do brain surgery to correct this person who obviously is not right, according to the rest of the world. It was kind of a logical conclusion going way far with this idea of cancel culture. If somebody says something that's wrong, they need to be corrected. And we may say, well, that's not really a problem I have, Pastor John. That's those secular people, those younger people. They're the ones who talk about cancel culture and all that stuff. But we do some of the same things. If we hear about somebody that we don't like, and when they misstep or they fail, oftentimes we jump right on that, say, aha, that person made a mistake. You should never listen to them or have anything to do with them ever again. They've been owned. My person clapped back at them. They shut them down. But is there a better way? Does God have any guidance for us about what we do when we run into these type of disagreements? People will do things that we disagree with that may even outrage us or shock us. And how do we respond? And you know, as I was reading through Scripture, I read through the Old Testament, New Testament every year, and I was in 1 Corinthians, and I realized the Apostle Paul spoke to something similar about this in chapter 4. And he talks about how God has called us to faithfulness, and we should trust Him because he is the judge. So let's pray, and then we'll look at God's word. Lord, thank you for this time we have to look at your word this morning. I pray, God, that as we look at this truth from this letter from Paul, you will help us to see the call you've given to each of us to faithfulness and the challenge you've given us to trust you as the judge. May that knowledge comfort us, convict us, and inspire us to live for you. May we live lives that are about you and not about us. To borrow words from John the Baptist, God, our prayers that you would increase, we would decrease, and that our lives would be about you and your kingdom. Thank you for your word. Please help us to learn from it this morning. Give us ears to hear and hearts willing to accept and apply what you have said. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Before we talk about what Paul says, it's going to be helpful to give a little bit of background about the book of 1 Corinthians. So it was written to Christians, a church in a city called Corinth. And this was not the best church in the world. This church in Corinth was incredibly divided. They argued about everything. There were divisions and factions running through it. And at the part we're reading today, Paul's talking particularly about how different people in the church like different preachers. They like different speakers or leaders and ministers in their church, and they would identify themselves by the preacher they liked. Back in chapter 1 of the book, he describes it this way. He says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, Well, I follow Paul. Paul is the best preacher that we've ever had. And then some say, no, I like the guy who came after Paul. I like Apollos. I follow Apollos. And some say, well, you know, Peter was around before either of those guys before them. I follow Cephas. I follow Peter. And then others say, you all are are crazy. We should just follow Christ and not get tied up in these arguments. 
These groups only cared about their favorite preacher or teacher, and they looked down on others because they liked someone else. Perhaps they thought everything their guy did was right, and everything one of those other pastors did was wrong. And this was dividing the church. And so Paul's response to that is in chapter 4. But before he even touches on that issue, he says, before we think about others and how we respond to them, we need to look at ourselves, consider what God says about us. And God calls us to faithfulness. God calls us to faithfulness. If you're using the outline, that's your first blank. God calls us to faithfulness. I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 now. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. This is what Paul writes. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, that they be found faithful. What he's saying is, you guys are arguing about these different preachers, but me, Paul, the guy who followed me, Apollos, we're not competitors. We are servants of Christ. We're lowly service and subject to Christ's authority. And we are charged, we are entrusted with explaining God's mysteries, preaching, teaching to you. We're really stewards of these, mission, of these mysteries. We are responsible for God's kingdom business. A steward was somebody whose life was devoted to their master's cause. When a king would leave a kingdom, he'd put somebody else in charge. That was the steward. It's the one God, the king has entrusted for a purpose. And so Paul's saying, we have been ones entrusted by God for this purpose. Perhaps today, a better analogy may be of a foreman over workers or someone in administration over some other people who has to report to a boss higher than them. Paul, though, says he's a steward of the mystery, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and the other truth that God has revealed. He's saying that knowing this truth, knowing what God has said, is a sacred trust. He has a responsibility now. He's saying he as a minister has a responsibility to share about God. It's the same type of responsibility that I take as a pastor. I'm responsible to tell you God's truth. I'm not responsible to tell you my opinions or what I think, but I'm to tell you what God has said. And each of us has that responsibility. It may look a little different. We each have a responsibility to others. If God has given us truth, if he's shown us something about who he is and who Jesus is, we're responsible to share that with others, to tell others that good news and that truth about who Jesus is. This is the role of every Christian. So we are all stewards. We've all been entrusted with something by God, our King. And Paul says in verse 2 that it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, trustworthy, upright, and sound when their master returns. They're to be faithful to the calling that God has entrusted to them. And all Christians have this calling. We all have this responsibility. We've been set aside by God as an ambassador, a representative of him. Being a Christian is a title. It means something. And having a title or a position is nothing if it is not fulfilled faithfully. We are, have responsibilities and are held accountable for it. How we end, how we finish is much more important than how we begin. So what does it look like? How do we live faithfully? Well, it impacts how we serve, how we live, and it also impacts our purpose, the motives we have for life. We'll live life differently. We'll live with integrity and uprightness. We'll choose the course of action that honors God and that blesses others. 
Our calling will be, as Peter puts it, as each of us has received a gift, we use it to serve one another as good stewards, the same word, as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we'll serve in this way, but our purpose will be our desire to serve God, to see his kingdom expand. We won't be living for ourselves, but for him. The Protestant reformer John Calvin put it this way. He says, everyone that teaches the truth is not necessarily faithful, but only he who desires from the heart to serve the Lord and advance Christ's kingdom. Just because you say something right, that doesn't make it good. We have to have the right purpose and desire that's not about ourselves, but is about God's kingdom. Very practically, what this means is that our faithfulness doesn't come down to big decisions that we make. It comes down to small decisions that we've made every day, little small choices that build up to living for the Lord. Uh, In an elder meeting, uh, Elder Tom Toon reminded us of this example, example of Daniel. If you're unfamiliar with the story, Daniel was in exile. He was in another country in service to another king. And while he was there, a law was passed that for a month you could only pray to the king. You couldn't pray to your God or anything else. You could only pray to the king. And this is what Daniel does. When Daniel knew that this law, this document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. And here's the key phrase, as he had done previously. This was something he did every day. It wasn't that he needed a a bold statement to stand up for God. He just continued doing what he had done every day. His faithfulness had already been built in because he had made the small decisions to seek God every day. And so when the challenge came, he was just ready to continue in it. We may look at it and say, oh, I definitely stand up if that happened. But if we hadn't built the discipline in, if we hadn't been committed to seeking God every day, would we do the same then? Faithfulness comes from daily choosing to live for the Lord, reading his word, praying, seeking him. If we're going to respond rightly when we disagree with someone, we ourselves need to be faithful. Because then we can respond with confidence because we know that God is the ultimate judge. God is the ultimate, the final, the supreme judge. And Paul kind of talks about this in two parts. He first says that God judges the heart. God judges the heart. God is the ultimate judge, and he judges the heart. Listen to verses 3 through 5 in chapter 4. Paul then says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. That doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation, his reward from God. Paul here is writing to some Corinthians, maybe those who said they were followers of Apollos or Cephas, who spoke against him. Maybe they questioned his speaking abilities or his ministry, and they thought they could judge his spiritual effectiveness. They said, well, to me, Paul isn't a very effective. He's not doing a lot for the kingdom right now. He's not serving the Lord as well as he could. And Paul says, hearing that, that's just a small, that's a little thing to me. He didn't really care if people doubted him 
because his desire was to be faithful before God. And their human judgments didn't matter. And what he means is their judgment on his distinction, his honor, his value, that didn't matter to him. And the same is true for us. What someone else thinks about you is far less important than what God thinks, because he alone is our master, and he alone can see the heart, what's happening on the inside. Now, if someone attacks us, we may be hurt by that criticism. It may wound us deeply, but we should not be moved by it, because only God determines our value. Paul is incredibly honest here. He says he doesn't even trust his own judgment. In fact, I do not even judge myself. His view of himself is irrelevant from an eternal perspective. It doesn't matter what he thinks about himself. It matters what God thinks about him. So he doesn't judge and evaluate his worth before God. Now, if you've listened attentively, you may say, Pastor John, this sounds like the opposite of what you told us last week, because last week you told us that if we want to be close to God, if we feel distant from him, we should check ourselves, evaluate where we are. And here Paul is saying he doesn't even do that. Well, they're talking about two different things. We should check ourselves, see, evaluate our hearts. Do we have sin before God? Is there something keeping us apart from Him? But we shouldn't pass final judgment on ourselves, whether we're completely good, completely wrong, before the time. We should exercise judgment, wisdom, discernment. We should avoid those who don't appear to show fruit or be living for the Lord. Matthew 7 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, by how they live. We should make decisions, say, all right, this person doesn't seem to be living for the Lord. But we should recognize that our judgment there is not perfect. We should make a wise decision. This person doesn't seem to be living for the Lord. It'd probably be wise for me to stay away. But it'd be too far to say that person is too far gone for God and his grace. Paul is saying that type of judgment is only up to God. Looking at himself, he believes that his motives are genuine and he thinks his conscience is clear. He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but that's not the end of the story. He cannot recall a glaring failure in his Christian service, but that doesn't make him confident. It's not looking at himself that makes him confident before God because he knows what the Old Testament says. In Proverbs, it says, every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs and considers the heart. And that's why he says in verse 4, but I am not thereby acquitted. I'm not made innocent, declared not guilty. Only God can acquit. Only God can give true, lasting, perfect judgment and proof. Because God is the ultimate judge. He is the one who examines and determines our eternal future. The end of verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. And next to God, we are nothing compared to him because he is holy and perfect and completely righteous and good. One psalmist in Psalm 143, in a prayer to God, says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. No one living is right before God. Without God and his grace, we are stuck in our sin. And that's the truth. When we were created, we had intended to have a perfect relationship with God. But we have a problem. We sin, we rebel, we reject God and his rules. We seek after things we want, the things we want to live for and do. And that pushes us away from a God who is perfect, who never makes mistakes. 
And that's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came. He came so that we could have that relationship to be restored to God. He came so that we could have a right connection with God again. That if we turn away from our sin and believe in Jesus Christ, then we can know him, that we can know God, that we can be righteous, not because we're good, but because we know Jesus, who is perfectly good. And so I encourage you, if you do not know Jesus Christ, then, then ask questions about that. You need a relationship with him that comes as you reject your sin and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. But since God, through Jesus, is the only one who makes us right, that's why he says in verse 5, we should not pronounce or make judgments about someone's fate before Jesus Christ returns. Because when he returns, he will bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness. He will disclose and reveal the private purposes, motives, counsels of every human heart. In Romans 8, 27, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it talks about God. He is the one who searches hearts. God can search our heart. He can see what's happening on the inside. The things we hide from others, we can't hide from God. And when he returns, all our secret desires will be revealed. So Paul's lesson for the Corinthians is only the Lord knows a person's heart, and he will be the one who judges. A different translation of this passage, the New Living Translation, puts it, don't make judgments about anyone. And this is something that we see elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus says the same thing. In Matthew 7, he says, judge not that you be not judged. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And God is the only one who has a perfect standard. In Romans, Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. God is the ultimate judge. He makes the final determination. And at Christ's return, he will separate his people from his enemies, the righteous from the unrighteous. Then it will be clear, and he will give every person their deserved commendation, their reward and praise. Paul wrote about this in the chapter just before. He said, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, manifest. The day Christ returns will disclose and reveal it. It will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Or in another book, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Sometimes we can obscure what's happening here. Our eternal fate, how we know God, how we relate to him, that's determined by our relationship with Jesus, not by what we do. The only way that we can be sure that we're going to heaven, have a relationship with God, have an eternal future with him, is by believing in Jesus Christ. But scripture also talks about we will be held accountable for our actions. There will be a reward for those who live for him. I can't tell you exactly what that looks like. Scripture isn't 100% clear on that, but there will be a reward. We will be held accountable. That can scare us, or we can do what Paul says, and if God is the ultimate judge, then we should not despair, but thank the judge. Thank the judge. We thank this judge. This is what he talks about in verses 6 and 7. 
He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received something from God, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul is telling the Corinthians, you shouldn't judge between Paul and Apollos and those who follow him. This is the point he's been making. He said in the last chapter, let no one boast in men. You shouldn't go beyond, exceed scripture, what I've given you. You should pay attention to what I've quoted. Because if you don't obey what God has said, you'll be puffed up. You'll be proud. You'll be arrogant. There was an early church father named John Chrysostom, and he, he said a really good image, I thought about this. He said, whoever is inflamed and puffed up, he must be the diseased one, for he is swollen above the proportion to the rest. The image is like a basket of fruit, and you look at it, and almost all of them are the same size, they look really good, and one, though, is particularly big and large. And most of us would say, all of these are like this, that one is different. I'm probably going to eat one of these ones that looks the same as all the rest rather than that one different one. That's what Chrysostom is saying. If you see somebody puffed up and large, they're not fitting in with what God's intention for his people is. Pride has no place among God's people. It doesn't reflect God's love. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. And in the book of Romans, he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to you, everyone among you should not think more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. We shouldn't lift ourselves up higher than we need to be. We should think about ourselves the way God does. And that's why Paul asks questions in verse 7 to really go at their pride. He says, who makes you different? Who sees anything different in you? What gives you the right to pronounce judgment on someone else? What did you have that you didn't receive from someone else, from God? And those are convicting questions because the only thing that makes us different from anyone else is God and His grace. Everything is from Him. He's telling them, Corinthians, your talents, your abilities, your opportunities, any blessings that you have are from God. So you should not boast about them or take pride in them. John the Baptist said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And I apologize for any parents of young children, but it's it's stupid to take pride in something that you didn't create, that you didn't make. And any blessing we have came to us from God. We didn't bring it into being. He gave it to us. And so that's why Paul's third question challenges them about this. He says, if you received it, if you received blessings from God, why do you boast as if you did not receive things from God? Why do you live in pride? His point is that you have pride in following a particular leader and in being a part of a particular club or group. That takes away from God's gift. That exposes the evil of partisanship, factions in the church. Yes, different people prefer different leaders and teachers, and that is okay, because God's kingdom is all about God, not about us. Again, just before this, Paul had said, I planted, I worked in the church planting, Apollos came after me, he watered, but God gave the growth. That means neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives 
the growth. God uses different people to build His kingdom. And so if we remind ourselves that everything comes from God, and any growth, any change we we see in His people comes from Him, well, that should produce humility. We should respond with thankfulness. God is the judge. He is in control. I can thank Him. A scholar named Roger Morlang said, there is no room here for pride. Humble gratitude is the only appropriate attitude. Everything we have comes from Jesus. Paul said, because of him, you, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Any righteousness or goodness we have is from him. Any sanctification, any growth we have comes from him. Any redemption, our salvation from sin comes from him. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you are here and you claim to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, you are not a Christian because of anything you did. You are a Christian because of God's grace that he showed through Jesus Christ. And if that's true, the argument Paul is building is everything we have is from Jesus, and that means we shouldn't exercise final judgment on someone. Say that person doesn't deserve to be listened to or exist. We don't have the right to do that because the only reason we know Jesus is because of God's grace that we did not earn. All we have is from him. But then what what does this mean? What do I do though when someone offends me, when they say something against what I believe or what I stand for? I think we can learn a lot from Paul here. Paul is saying if he is not qualified to judge himself, then we're not qualified to pronounce final judgment on someone else. Our sin, after all, our rebellion against God, it can cloud our judgment. We don't see everything. We don't see every detail. We don't know everything that's going on behind the scenes. We may see something that that looks right, that looks good to us, but maybe we didn't know about bad motives or wrong deception going on in the heart. As Paul would write elsewhere, it is not the one who commends, who praises himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends, who the Lord praises. And different people have different responses here. Some brush over problems and difficulties, and there are truths that we will stand on. I'll talk about that in a little bit. But I think some of us search for wrong. We look for something we we disagree with and seek that out. And if we do that, we sometimes can miss what God is doing. I know that's something that that I struggle with. I think through things very carefully, and I can almost immediately see, ah, that point's wrong. That thing that person said is a little off. That's not quite true with what God has said. But if I'm not careful, I can let that attitude impact and then harm others. As I was thinking about this, I was remembering when I was in college, I had a small group. I kind of led a little small group Bible study at the school, and I had been learning about some ways to study God's Word, some things I didn't know. So I taught my small group about this one passage that's often misunderstood. And I said, this is the way it actually should be. And they're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. The very next week, there was a speaker at the college who was preaching, and he preached one of the best sermons I ever heard. His sermon was challenging us to live for God, to live on mission for Him, to be passionate about sharing the good news of the gospel, to make our lives about God's kingdom. It was one of the best sermons I ever heard. In one little aside point to his sermon, he used that passage I had talked about, and he said it the way that I don't think it is is quite right. But it was a super minor point in this excellent sermon. 
And I was real excited to talk to the guys in my small group about it and see how they were challenged by it. And we get together and they said, did you see, John? He messed up that thing. That passage you talked about, he got that wrong. Yeah, guys, but what about what he was saying about God's kingdom? Oh, I didn't listen after that because he got that one thing wrong that you said. That's not their problem. That's my problem because I taught them to focus on that rather than listening for what is the truth of God behind this. Yes, maybe that point was wrong, but they missed what God was doing there. Why do we do this? Why do we judge others and stop listening to them, push them aside? I think in Paul's point here, he talks about being puffed up. It comes from our pride. We desire to compare ourselves to others and make ourselves look better. I think that's behind a lot of why we choose a team or a side, people to follow. We do it to feel better about ourselves, make ourselves feel better than others. Now, there's nothing wrong with picking a team to root for or a side in a political issue, but we need to be aware of the temptation to let our side become a source of pride. Oh, I, I stand for this, so that makes me better than people who don't stand for this. That's, that's the opposite of what Paul is going for here. If we live our life that way, comparing ourselves to others all that time, it only leads one of two places. We either become complacent or we despair. If we're comparing ourselves to others, we may say, well, you know what? I'm better than this person, so that means I'm good. I don't need to change. I can stay right here and I'll be good. Or we compare and say, I'm not nearly as good as that person. I'll never be as good as that person. Everything is hopeless for me. And we can fall to the, either of those sides if our life is about comparing ourselves to others. We either are complacent, we stop changing, or we feel hopeless and in despair. I know I do this. I do this far often than I care to admit. I do it in many areas, uh, professionally and personally. So in my job, I may think, well, you know what? I'm better than some other pastors. There's some other pastors who've done things. I'm better than them, so I don't have to change anything that I'm doing. I can feel that way. That's not a right attitude to have. I should want to change and grow. But on the other hand, I might look, I'm like, I'll never be like that pastor over there. It's just, it's hopeless for me. I'll never be good enough. I can feel that way personally as well. I'm, I've had a, a new title for almost a year, a new responsibility, that of a husband. And as I live in that, I can think, well, you know what? I'm better than some other husbands, so I'm pretty good. I don't need to love my wife anymore this week. You know, compared to those other guys, I'm doing pretty well. Well, that's not right. But on the other hand, I can also think, these other people are so much better husbands than I am. I'll never be good enough. I'm terrible. I'm a failure. And we can do the same in our work relationships, I imagine you do, or in your personal ones. At your job, you can look at others, and you can either make yourself feel good, I'm good, I don't need to change, or you can look at people and think, wow, I'll never be good enough, i am never be as good as this person is. And we can do it in our relationships, whether you're a husband or a wife, whether you're a parent, comparing yourself to other parents, or a child, comparing yourself to your siblings or your friends, or maybe even in just what kind of friend you are to others. We can make our lives about comparison, and that's not the desire that Paul has for us here. What does he have? Well, let's talk about some application here, or the now what of the sermon. This is what Paul has said. If he says that we're to be faithful and that God is the ultimate judge who judges hearts and we should thank him, let's talk about four application points we can have living in this divisive world. And if you look on your sheet, you'll notice a word in the middle of every sentence, which is and. When I first wrote it, I put but, do this, but that. But 
I, I didn't think that was the best way to describe it. We're to live a certain way and live another way. Hold these things together. So these four points of application that I saw coming from this that I think God is directing to our hearts, the first one is to be discerning and let God judge hearts. Be discerning, be careful, but let God judge hearts. Jesus said this to his disciples, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's a dangerous, vicious world. So be as wise as serpents, but be as innocent as doves. Be wise, be careful, but don't attack like a serpent. Be innocent like a dove. And what this means is when we're dealing with someone that we disagree with or say something different, there's a difference between rejecting someone's teaching or rejecting what they, their idea versus rejecting a person. There's a difference between rejecting someone's authority versus rejecting someone's value as a human being. Now, let me be clear. There are false teachers in the world. The Bible is here. It tells us God's truth. There is such a thing as right and wrong, and we should prayerfully discern the difference between them. And when someone does wrong, there are consequences. There are consequences for our wrong words and actions, and some of these consequences can be lifelong. And if if someone's breaking the law in some way, that should be reported to authorities. I'm not brushing over something like that. I'm saying something in terms of our personal response. When proper people have been notified, consequences have been made, the fact still remains that their value as a human being remains the same. And when we have a disagreement, we must remember that final judgment belongs to God. We don't know what he's going to do. He can act on that person's behalf. He can convert, completely change them from the inside out. Or maybe we're wrong to condemn them. Maybe he'll show us that we were the ones who were wrong. If you ask me about a preacher, a teacher, or a book, I will gladly tell you about problems and issues that I see in that particular book or material or that that speaker says. But please hear me that I I try. I'm not perfect at it, but I'm working at making sure that I'm judging what they say, not the person themselves. I don't have the authority to put judgment on a person. Now, there's some practical things we can do. Very practically, if someone's failed multiple times, if it's become known that they're misleading people, well then, yes, it's best to avoid that person, avoid listening to what they say, but we should still consider each claim, each moment individually because people can change, especially with the Holy Spirit's help because the Lord is the one who judges righteously. He's the one who tests the heart and the mind, like how fire can reveal metal. He tests what's really there. So if we're interacting with someone, this is what I try to do. If somebody asks me about a particular person or teaching thought that I disagree with, I'll say, well, I struggle with what that person says about this. I try to say that rather than saying, oh, don't listen to that person. They're terrible. Listen to them. That's, I'm attacking the person. I'm not attacking what they have said. What they have said may be wrong, and God's word may have something to say about it, but I'm not attacking who they are as a person. I'm addressing the error, not the person. Another application that kind of connected to that is we should think critically and rejoice in righteousness. Think critically and rejoice in righteousness where we see it. We should really think about the meaning behind someone's words. God has given us brains to use. So just because someone says, oh, I'm a Christian, you can trust me, that's not a good enough reason to believe someone because much of what passes for Christian really isn't. We should think critically about what they're saying. 
But at the same time, one failure, one error, one mistake, one disagreement, that doesn't mean they should be permanently rejected. God blesses every person in this world with life, with talents, with abilities. So you can enjoy what non-Christians do with their gifts. You can thank God for seeing God has given his righteousness and goodness to this person, even though they don't know him, to do this thing that's blessing my life. You don't need your electrician to be a Christian. You need the lights to work. And when they do, you can praise God. Wow, that's great that he's given this person this skill. A person doesn't have to be a Christian for you to enjoy their music, read their book, cheer for their sports team. Because as James says, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And if we rejoice where we see goodness in the world, where we see God's righteousness, I think that should motivate us to share the gospel when we see non-believers do that. Wow, this person doesn't know Jesus. They have this amazing gift. I want to tell them or people who like this person about Jesus so that they can thank God for that gift and not keep that praise to themselves. When I'm addressing them then, I want to make sure that I speak truth and build up others. I want to speak truth, but speak truth in a way that builds up others others. I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that we should ignore, excuse, or downplay any sin. I'm not saying that sin is always an offense to God. There are always consequences. Sin needs to be exposed. Ignoring a problem is not the way to go. However, angry condemnation doesn't really help either. We read this verse earlier with our Uh, Before offering, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupting talk, only such as good for building up, not tearing down, winning the argument, but building someone up to give grace to that person. And this will look different for different people. Your personality, your passions may mean that you emphasize one issue, one thing more than another. You may really care about one particular thing. I may care about another particular thing. That doesn't mean that one or the other is more or less important. It doesn't affect their value. And this is also a very challenging thing to think about, about speaking truth in a way that builds up. Because there's so much wrong in the world. And we can see everything that's wrong in the world now. And it is completely impossible for any one person to address every wrong in the world. Unless that one person is Jesus. Only he can address every wrong. And we can wear ourselves down thinking, I have to say the right thing about every single problem or situation I encounter. And that's incredibly difficult to do that because so many issues in our world are complicated. There's nuance. There's, There's some gray. There's some wisdom from God that we need to apply. And somebody may disagree, and that doesn't mean that they're misunderstanding God's word. That means we need to talk more, seek the truth together in it. The truth is the Bible does speak to the issues of the day. The problem is it rarely does speak to them in ways of clear, specific policy. It doesn't say, God doesn't say, you should support this bill that's now before Congress over here. God's word doesn't talk like that, but it does tell us about principles. Here's a principle we should seek to apply. Somebody may disagree about the way to bring it about. And that's something we'll have to wrestle with and struggle through, that there's not a 100% clear answer and that we need to show grace with how we apply God's principles. 
there are so many things that we could talk about with this, and we could be here all day with it, and I hesitate to really go into anything because I don't want anything I say to be misunderstood. But I I do want to try to apply this to how we talk about uh, some issues of particularly racial justice and, and riots and all those things going on. There's a phrase that's been associated with it, which is Black Lives Matter. And what's really difficult is how we communicate around that phrase. It's incredibly, incredibly hard. The reason it's hard is because there is a great truth there. And the great truth there is that God has made all people. He has created every person. And since he has, that means they have worth and value. And where someone's worth and value is torn down, despised, and rejected, that person should be built up and encouraged. So a way to build somebody up is to say that phrase, to encourage them that, yes, your life does matter. It has value. But on the other hand, saying that to some implies that you're attacking someone's profession. It implies that you're uh, attacking their value of what they do with their life. It's also a phrase tied to a movement that is clear policy goals. And those need to be looked at individually. I'm not going to stand up here and go through things like that and say, oh, this is right, this is wrong. I'm not going to do that. I'm saying it's a gray issue that people can disagree upon. So that phrase, Black Lives Matter, one thing, it's 100% absolutely true because since every life has value, those who have been pushed down need to be lifted up and encouraged. So absolutely that. But where it relates to a movement, that's something that people are going to disagree on, that we need to take the work to have long and hard conversations about, that short little phrases aren't going to solve those problems, but long conversations and hard, difficult ones, that's what's going to fix things. And I'm learning about these things. I'm not going to sit here and say, I have all the answers about all that. I will admit that there is much I have to learn. There are many people more wiser, more informed on these things, and I will gladly submit to their judgment and learn from them. But that's why it's so difficult about speaking truth to build up. We have to think about what can I say in a way that builds up and encourages people. The same thing applies when we're talking about responses to the coronavirus. We can all affirm the truth that we should love others, that we should show grace and respect to other people, that we should seek to build up others. But what does that look like? And people may disagree about that. Is it more loving to do whatever you can to keep somebody healthy and safe? Or is it more loving to encourage someone in a way they're used to and appreciate? That, that's a tough line, and I'm not going to stand up here and lay down hard and fast rules about that. That's why we need to think about a way, how can I speak truth to someone? Maybe you can do this to keep that person more safe. Or maybe you can do this to really reach that person where they are. I need to speak truth, but in a way that builds up. Saying you're a terrible person because you didn't wear a mask here, that, that doesn't solve something. But on the other hand, saying you just live in fear, so you're not trusting God, that doesn't solve anything either. We need to speak truth in a way that builds up. And if we're doing that, then we are using our gifts, and we're living in a way that we can thank God for them. God has given us gifts. He's given us so many blessings, and we can use them to help others, but not take credit for ourselves, but thank God. In all this, speaking our words about words and truth, we can get overwhelmed with it, but, but friends, God is not going to hold you accountable for what someone else does. You may be offended and upset about what that person does. Maybe there's a moment for you to speak truth in a way that builds up, but God is not going to hold you accountable for what someone else does. He will hold you accountable for what you do with the time that he has given to you. 
So how are you faithfully using the blessings that God has given you? If we live a life that's always looking for wrong, always looking to attack and tear down others, to me, that's a sad life. I'd rather live in a way using my blessings to bless God's people, to, to bless the world that God still reigns and rules over. I think that's a better way. There's a time and a place for criticism, but the goal should always be to encourage, to build up so that people thank God and that they know Him. In 1 Chronicles, David has this wonderful prayer. He says, Who am I? What is my people that we should be able to offer things willingly to you, God? Because all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. David had just did an offering, but he's pointing out, God, you really gave me this thing that I'm now giving back to you. Remember Paul's words at the very beginning. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. We may use language, oh, I own this, this thing belongs to me, but that's really not true. The truth is God has given you something. He's made you a steward of your possessions, of your body, of your life, and you are to use it for his kingdom. So if somebody does something and we say, I can't believe they did that, now what? What should we do? Well, before we take the time to criticize someone else, why don't we pause and we take a moment to thank God for what he has given us. Say, thank you, God, that you've given me this, that you've given me maybe some understanding on this that this person has. Let's start with thankfulness before we jump to a reaction. And let's especially thank God if we know him for the gift of salvation, because that's the greatest gift there is. Having a relationship with Jesus is the best gift that we can possibly have. And that's ours if we turn away from sin, we believe in Jesus, the one who came, the one who lived a perfect life and died on our behalf. So if you don't know him, I encourage you to ask questions. Ask me or ask someone else, how can I have a relationship with Jesus Christ? How can I have that right? And if we know him, then we can love him and we can love others rightly. We can speak truth. We can build up others. We can use our gifts, thank God, think critically, but rejoice in righteousness. We can be discerning, but let God be the judge, be the one who is in control. We can praise him because he is the one who is worthy of all praise.